Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. It's interesting because then I was so young and I never really understood the principle of a vibe. Now I fully understand it. If you're in a room of a hundred strangers and somebody walks in the door, like Richard Branson walks in the door, he's got a quite cool vibe. You'd go, whoa, yeah, he's got it. But the same way if somebody super negative walks in, you're like, oh, and that you should trust that. Hi, my name is Mark Groves, and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts, where I get to explore, alongside you, every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast, is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. You know, my first memory though, as a, like when I bought my first not great car, because it's your first car, mm. uh, it needed a lot of things, which forced me because I didn't have money to have to learn how to do things. You have to fix it. Yeah. And so my, the way I did that was a Haynes manual. Oh my God. Isn't that, See, what, is that what you did too? Uh, yeah. In the UK, Haynes is a... Uh... They're the Bible of car people. But it didn't really spread. I think America had an equivalent, the, maybe the Blue Book or? We had Haynes in Canada. Yeah, I don't know. Canada's. Oh, yeah, we're very British. Very British. Yeah, we're still under the claw of the king now. Yeah, the king. Yeah, it was weird actually listening to uh, the national anthem during the World Cup. Oh, yeah. I know. It's so, it's so weird, right? It's such, it's such a little nuance, but you think, oh, yeah. Except your team did a lot better. Than Canada. Canada. I know you guys did great for Canada. (laughs) We were in it. (laughs) We were in it. That's actually a big achievement. The society we live in now, you'll still get a medal. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We got the participation. (laughs) (laughs) Not winning, but participation award. A participation award, yeah. It'll be given to you by the slightly overweight uh, coach whose uh, six year old is also in the team. (laughs) (laughs) This is that would be classic Canada, too. And then we'll apologize for our performance in the World Cup. Uh, yeah, but you don't need to. You guys have done really well. Everyone Globally, everyone's like, oh. Canada, they're, why are they they're here? in this one. You know, it's like a wedding where somebody turns up, but they're not invited. <laughs> why are Canada warming up? <laughs> That's Canada. Where's the other team? <laughs> Your um, career development 
is so fascinating to me. Oh gosh. It's like when I look back at what you've done in your life, there's no there's not a direct you know how some people are like their dream is always to do the thing, and I'm sure yeah. that was an aspect of your childhood to what you're doing today. But you couldn't draw the line like so you were in the police, weren't you in like the UK kind of SWAT kind of thing? Uh, yeah, similar. So I joined the police when I was eighteen and a half. Um, and, and purely because I was a kid and didn't know what I wanted to do. So you should be a cop. Well, it's, it's funny because my auntie was a police officer. And I didn't really know any other police officers. Yeah. So I was kind of like, well, 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 I'll apply for that. And I didn't tell my parents till the night before I went to residential training school. Um, so that was in uh, 1999. I was 18 and a half. Were they excited for you to be a cop? Yeah. They, I mean, what does every parent want? Their parent wants their child to... Find something they love and go yeah. go after it and hopefully make a career out of it. At least you're on the right side of justice, you know, like well, at depends, least they know. Depends which police officers you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's um, a yeah. good point. I have arrested two police officers in my police career. <laughs> really? True, yeah. One on duty. I know. We so probably, while I'm probably you're not working, allowed to like, talk about it. Yeah, hey, in, in uniform. Um, yeah, I arrested a, a police officer. Yeah. And then one off duty. But you handled like some pretty crazy cases. Didn't you handle like some mass? Are you allowed to talk about this stuff? We can know. talk about some police stuff and, and I can pull the reins if it's naughty. So like you did that from 18 and a half. Until which- 2005. And uh, when I was 23, I went, uh, so guns isn't a thing in the UK. Yeah, don't you carry like a billy club or something? Yeah, like a little stick and a can <laughs> of gas. <laughs> That's it. Stop. Stop. Please stop, sir. <laughs> um, but think about, like, look at gun crime. And I don't want to go into a political yeah, yeah, like, yeah. minefield about this country and gun crime, but the gun crime in the UK is pretty much non-existent. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. you could still get hunting guns and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, there's still, well, since Dunblane, which was a school shooting in Scotland, the UK Parliament reacted instantly and banned any gun under 24 inches. Mm. Any gun, yeah. which means every handgun's taken out of circulation. Any modified gun. That's happening in Canada right now. And the first offence is five years. So if you're found with a bullet in your pocket, five years. A bullet, a bullet in yeah. your pocket. If you're found with a gun under 24 inches, five years. So if you think about it in terms of context, um, as an armed, a former armed and tactical firearms officer as part of the British police, going to gun incidents was super rare. But when you went, you knew it was a big, a big deal. Yeah, because they're already, yeah. they've got like it's got If it's come to us, yeah. it's like, oh shit, this is real. And of course, my biggest fear was... Um, you know, on the face of it, I looked like a normal police officer. Yes, I wore a ballistic vest, and yes, I wore certain different, and I carried a sidearm all the time. Um, Where most cops in the UK don't. No, right? no well, but hardly any. Uh, um, so I would, you know, turn up to a burglary because I happened to be in there. My biggest fear was that, you know, a, a, an armed member of the public would be like, oh, cops aren't armed. Right. You know, and then it's an issue. But um, British police, I think, engage and pull the trigger. Uh, it's like once every three years. Wow. If you think about it. Yeah. Well, context. there's no opportunity, which takes it away. Which is great. It's, yeah. a better, it's a better society, in my opinion. How did that progress? Like, how did your... I was uh, in the police in the UK. There is a a hierarchy system, much like the military. So you yeah. progress through um, rank. But everybody, even the highest rank, which is the chief constable of a district, every he would have started or she would have started as a constable. So everybody starts as a PC, a police constable. Everybody. And then you attain sergeant, inspector, chief inspector, and you you go through the ranks. So um, that was really solid because it meant everybody done the dirty bit, you know. They all started. Turning up at burglaries, dealing with shoplifters, dealing with domestic violence, dealing with death. You know, that was a real common, you know, road accidents. Yeah. Criminal damage, you know, all that kind of 
proper policing. That's 90% of the job. Um, and then you start to specialise. So I got to sort of 23 and I wanted to get out of uniform and go and do some really cool crime. And um, so I applied then for what was called the DSU, which is kind of like drug squad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was still super young and I knew I would be able to give something to the drug squad being so young and active and I was physically very, very fit. Yeah. So I'd have been a great asset. And then I, I was out on duty one day driving my normal patrol car and I get called back to the station. If you ever get called back to the station, you've done something wrong. <laughs> so I'm thinking, God, what have I done? It's like the principal's office. So. Who did I upset? <laughs> yeah. And um, when I got back in, the um, boss of the tactical firearms team, the TFU, had my application. He said, oh, you've applied for DSU. You should really apply for TFU. And of course, that's the dream job for most young. Oh, that's cool. And uh, yeah, I did. So 60 odd people apply. And then you go through this series of sort of psycho assessments and, you know, you sit with doctors and therapists and that's a big chunk of it. And those 60 becomes 12. Mm. So they discount most people based on how you react to a questionnaire and in, and they, they put you in scenarios and incidents. And then from those 12, we went on a residential course and it was long. I think it was 12 weeks, three months. And then um, three pass. Three out of yeah, the 12. And they do that every two years. So it's a small squad. Super small. And what are they handling? Mainly like... I guess SWAT, in terms of context, is a very aggressive form of, oh dear, call SWAT. Yeah. Hostage situation. I've seen the shows. Entry. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very real. That's how they deal with it. Whereas there isn't that infrastructure in the UK and there's no need for that really. Mm-hmm. But in the once a year or once every five years of that incident, you have to be prepared for it. Yeah, so the majority sense. of TFU's job is to drive armed response vehicles. So you deal with armed incidents and you get wrapped into, you get roped into sort of normal policing as well. So you will turn up at a burglary and, you know, a car accident because you're, you're still part of the police support structure. But every now and again, you'll... um you'll get the, the, the phone call for a big job. Yeah, and didn't you be. handle like some crazy high profile, was uh, it like a murder or something? Oh, the uh, yeah, I, I spent three days with John Duffy, who's uh, the railway murderer, serial killer, in a safe house in uh, a village, a little town called Royston. So just you and him? No, there's a few of us, but um, yeah, he and I played poker, played cards, watched TV, ate KFC. For three days. What was that like? It's interesting because then I was so young and I never really understood the principle of a vibe. Yeah. Now I fully understand it. <laughs> so, you know, and I, I and I try and explain this to my kids. You know, if somebody, if you're in a room of a hundred strangers and somebody walks in the door, you know, like Richard Branson walks in the door, he's got quite a cool vibe. Yeah. You'd go, whoa, yeah, he's got it. But the same way if somebody super negative walks in, you're like, oh, and that you should trust that. Mm-hmm. So that vibe that John Duffy gave off was really, really, it was tangible. You could really feel it. Um, you could tell this was a bad person. And then when, you know, I, I, you know, as part of the briefing, I was, you know, I read some of the extracts of uh, statements from the victims that survived as part of the, you're going to go and look after John Duffy for a few days, but you need to know the following. That's wild. And then we were given some rules, for example, the types of things he's allowed to watch on TV. So he wasn't allowed to watch, um, you know, anything sexual, anything aggressive. He's watching like Coronation Street or something. That's all. He's uh, well, you just—I mean, there was the—we were watching the Olympics. The Olympics was on at the time, and um, when the boxing came on, we had to stop him watching the boxing. It's so wild to think that like a guy who's being, I guess, like waiting to be tried is that. Why no, is no, it? he's in prison for the rest of his life. He actually came out of prison. He did his offences uh, with a co-offender. There was two of them that did it. Duffy was convicted successfully and will be in prison for the rest of his life. 
And then partway through his sentence, he said, if you improve my conditions, I'll tell you who I did it with. So they had DNA of the other guy. But they just never... But, but back then, you know, in the sort of, I think it was sort of like late 80s, early 90s, there was no, um, the other guy wasn't convicted. And because of Duffy's testimony over that period in court, the other guy got a knock at the door one day and he was married with kids. I mean, he murdered, they, between them, they raped and murdered countless women. And they were called the railway murderers because they left the bodies on the train lines to be hit by trains. Uh, Are we talking? Wow. So we're talking psychopaths. Absolutely. Like straight yeah, yeah. up. And uh, Duffy had really, he had like eyes like a wolf. They were really pale. The color part of his eye was really gray. Like it was pretty sinister. So how do you go from, like, as you're doing that, are you also, as you would call it, a petrol head? Like, it's well, that no, head? I was a petrol head before I was a police officer. Right. But then as you're a police officer, are you still doing car stuff? Yeah, of course. Yeah. I built my first car when I was 16, before I had a license. And then um, I was always flipping cars. So I'd buy a project, fix it in my spare time, sell it, buy two, fix them, sell it. And at one point I was probably 19 years old and I had like eight projects. And I was really good at turning around. I was really good at buying a bargain, fixing it because I just loved fixing stuff and yeah. then just selling it for a bit of profit. And then I would accumulate, you know, one year I'd buy a welder and then I'd buy a, you know, a, a, a new set of spanners. So I'd built, I'd, I'd amassed this little workshop in my dad's little tiny garage and then around it, I'd uh, commandeered my two neighbors' garages, and so I had three garages. And um, that's awesome. No, it was amazing. And then shift work, being a police officer, working early, lates, and nights is perfect if you're a car builder because you get a lot of time off. So I was always playing sport. So I was, play, you know, use, I playing football would would help fund a lot of it. And I had a job, and then I had all this time off, and you know, my passion was always cars. So in 2005, when I made the decision to leave the police, I had this kind of moment. I just had my daughter Amelie. And I was like, what do I want to do? What do I love? And it's so obvious. Yeah. I love playing football and I love building cars. So I played football for money and play, and built cars for, for fun and turned that passion into a, into a job. And it's weird now looking back. Like if I hadn't right. left in 2005, I would still be a policeman. It's so weird to draw it out, you know. Oh, I That's know. That's what I mean is like you look back upon your life and there's so many people who, you know, work on Volkswagens or work on whatever, mm. and they just keep a main job and just do that on the side. But you got to turn this, which in. is great. But no, yeah. I'm so privileged. It's so interesting, and you hear these kind of cliche lines about you know if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. Yeah. It's so true. It really is. It really is. I mean, even this week, you know, I've been um, I've been redesigning tiny parts of the new Radford supercar. You know, on on a computer screen a couple of years ago, the car was designed and we built it. But now that I'm with it, I'm constantly changing it. So I, you know, I go and drive it and I'm like, oh yeah, we should move that switch three millimeters to the right. And we do. <laughs> so so, so cool. I've been doing so, yeah, this week I redesigned the entire kind of fuel system um, and just how you fuel the car. So it's great because these little challenges is what, um, what really ticked me as a kid. Because well, I was the type of kid that would build Lego and fix stuff and make stuff. Was there a certain type of car that was your passion? I like, like crappy old cars. Yeah. It's a problem. <laughs> it's a real problem. My, my kind of ultimate old car is a, a Land Rover Series 1. So before Defender, yeah. the, the square yeah, yeah, yeah. one, Land Rover was launched in 1948, drawn in a stick in the sand. Really? Yeah, that's the inspiration. And then it was made from all the materials left over from World War II. That's why they're all green. It's all uh, the paint they had. That's why oh, they're all pressed cool. aluminium. Um, so that early Series 1 in my opinion, is the, the most iconic car on the planet. If you draw that, even that silhouette, anybody in the world knows what it, what it is. It's a Land Rover. Yeah, that's true. So I love working on early Land Rovers. Plus, mechanically, they're really, really simple. 
and robust and, you, you know, they're forgiving. There's no fine-tuning. You don't need to worry about the camber and caster angles on a Land Rover. It just goes over the bump. <laughs> so I have actually bought a, a, a Series 1 body, which oh. I'm shipping here to Laguna, and I'm making a, um, an electric beach cruiser. Oh, you're going to electrify it. Oh, yeah. I'm very pro-electric cars. Yeah. But will you just use, like, what kind of motor? Um, I, I don't know yet. Haven't figured it out. Um, there's tons of options out there now. Yeah. I mean, countless options for electric cars. If you haven't heard me talk about Cozy Earth Sheets before, let me tell you, I'm about to introduce you to the greatest sheets you will ever have touch your body. Anytime someone comes to our house and stays in our guest room, they always want to know what is the bed situation. What are the sheets that we have? Their sheets, their comforters, their duvets, everything is magic. Their bedding is naturally breathable. It's temperature regulating. It's so damn soft. It's ethically sourced viscose from bamboo. It's incredible. And the brand was featured on Oprah's favorite thing, but before that, it was featured on Mark's favorite things. Like, I discovered this brand years ago before I ever even chatted with them about being a sponsor for the podcast. And because I love their product so much, I asked for an exclusive offer for you, and you get 40% off site-wide. And now they have pajamas. They have, like, loungewear. So not only do you get to wrap yourself in the experience of the sheets as clothing, but you then get to get into the bed in that. So you're, like, double-wrapped. And so all you got to do to save 40% off site-wide is use the code GROVES at checkout. So just my last name, G-R-O-V-E-S. So go to CozyEarth.com, C-O-Z-Y-E-A-R-T-H dot com and use the code Groves and you get 40% off all their products. Yeah, because yeah, you guys did that one electric car project with um, the Property Brothers, right? Was that electric? Well, I, did, I did one with Drew Scott. That's right. Called Drew Scott's Dream Car and then I did one with James Marsden. Oh, I remember that. The, the four-door Buick. Yeah. yeah. And I've heard that that car is going for sale in January. Really? Yeah, that is a proper car. I can't believe they're selling that. That was his father's iconic car or like favorite car. I, it, it was his um, former brother-in-law who's still his great friend. And um, yeah, but that's the great thing about cars is you get what you want from it. Yeah. And you move it on and somebody else then benefits. And, you know, his name's Will. You know, hopefully Will will go and get another little car and keep tinkering. And that, I mean, that car was pretty cool. I remember the interior was just like. Off the scale. It, it was insane. Whoever buys that car is getting a proper, proper bit of kit. That yeah, is a was, one-off as well. Yeah. Yeah, same I might with buy Drew's. It. That's the <laughs> yeah, oh, that's a problem. Same with Drew's car. Drew's car was pretty cool. That thing yeah, was a one-off cool. convertible. I don't even, is that body a one-off? Yeah, it was. A, we just kind of made it up, yeah. I mean, it, that's wild. Like, what was the transition point where you could go from playing football for money, formerly a cop, to actually making money from cars? Oh, it took years. Yeah, like, yeah. what was the turning was like point the, that I'm you're like, I can make money here. I can actually have a job, like a living. <laughs> Yeah, looking back, I mean, I was a typical shocking businessman. Like in my world, I'm like, oh, well, I'm paying the mortgage and yeah. um, I'm kind of, I'm occupied and I'm, I'm purpose driven. Um, but looking back, the amount of stuff I did for free, <laughs> or I just didn't bill, or I just didn't invoice. That's kind of classic, isn't it? Oh yeah, Early of course. On. Yeah. It's so, it's so, it's so common. And it's probably a signal of that you're on the right path. Yeah, that's true. Because then you're not driven by the financials, you're driven by the the process it's yeah i think there's also that part where you charge money for the thing you love and i think some of us have a challenge believing that we're worthy of making money from what we love true like, i remember the first time i charged for something it was like and you felt guilty yeah i'm like oh, wait i can i can charge money for this knowledge or this yeah. advice or this thought which is such a 
you have to believe the thought is worth it or the the service is worth it. But then you realize, you know, that people get tremendous value from what you're creating. I know. And that's the point is that we all, I guess, have imposter syndrome. Yeah. And we think, I'm going to get worked out soon. What this guy's Someone's going to figure this out. This, this guy's going to pay me to fix his car? Yeah, but fix it anyway. Because in your world, like it, you didn't go for formal training to get approved no. as a mechanic to do, you know, all the steps, the credentialing. You didn't do any of that. No, I am literally an imposter. Yeah, I'm literally. <laughs> I'm literally. Nobody's worked out yet, though. So don't publish this. <laughs> yeah, let's edit that one part. So, yeah, where did you go from like making money as a footballer to making money as. A car builder. Well, I was lucky. I still, I consistently played football for 17 years. Over 700 games at that paid level. I would kind of make enough money doing that. And some seasons were great, you know, where I'd earn a lot. And some seasons were rubbish, where I played for a lower team. And a couple of seasons, I played for teams that say they'll pay you. (laughs) And they don't. I managed to, you know, make a living making cars. I, I rented a cow shed. Uh, which I did a deal with the farmer that if you um, if you let me, if you move the cow out, and it had a cow in it, and I welded up some front doors, bricked in the back window, painted it all white, put electrics in there, moved in. So I did that renovation in exchange for the first year rent free. And I was there for three and a half years wow. on my own. No toilet, no water, no heater. And winters in the UK yeah, are pretty brutal. So I'd go to legit. work in like balaclava. And I remember going to work one year and met a client, but I was so sick because it was so cold, that I would run outside and throw up. It was brutal, but brilliant. And then I employed <laughs> my first my, my first member of staff was in the, at the end. So for about three months, a guy called Chris and myself worked in the cow shed. And then Chris was like, why are we working in a cow shed? <laughs> and then I took a leap and rented an actual proper unit. And then from there, I started employing people. And, and building cars, like repair, building cars, yeah. repairing them? No, at that stage, I was building my own cars. So I was still doing restorations. Yeah. And um, I started to get a reputation for building reproductions. So I built a lot of Aston Martins. Oh. And then I do a lot of artwork. So artwork's a big part of my, um, you know, being able to build a business. Yeah. Um, and I did a lot of building work. I built Harley Davidson's head office. Oh, really? Yeah, I built roofs off schools, but I never advertised it. I did lots of sculpting. In fact, the biggest private collection in the world is in Alabama, the Barber Museum. They have four of my sculptures. I didn't know you were a sculptor, too. Yeah, I do lots of art. I didn't know you sculpted. Yeah, because I never tell anyone. I was able to, you know, restore a car, speculate on a project, so I'd buy a car and fix it, knowing that I owned it and was going to sell it. And I did artwork and a lot of construction work, a lot of building work. And then I started doing cool stuff for cool people like the owner of jcb i did lots of artwork for him um, the best car show in the world is goodwood and if you walk around goodwood it's all in period the goodwood uh, revival it's called but if you walk around the site the bus stops the vintage signs the drinks bar at the members club i made all of that what yeah so i didn't know you were also doing so your ability to spatially create like shape imagine that's that. my favorite part of building and that's the what goes into building cars now and yeah, has always done absolutely that. it's about yeah. it's about materials and shape and my favorite part of restoration is shaping metal so if i've got a car where it's had a crash or the wing's missing or there's a big rust hole in it and over there i've got a, a load of tools and a big you know a sheet of metal that's my favorite 
I'll turn that sheet of metal into a curved panel that fills in the rust hole. That's my, that's my kind of superpower. When did it become an opportunity for like television? I've done 10 years on television now. And I think I've hosted 24 television shows. Wow. And I, but I turned down my first show, which was 11 years ago. And it was one of those kind of accidents falling into television. Because most people that are on television never set out to be on television. And I yeah. certainly never set out to be on TV. Yeah. And it's interesting because I still don't consider it my job. Mm. I have a job. And then on the side, I do some stuff. People on TV film, that, people yeah, film your stuff, which is wild to me. Yeah. Um, about 11 years ago, I got asked to do, um, so I had an electrician called Peter Gillum, PJ, who's passed now, bless him. So he was a subcontractor and he would come in every couple of weeks and help me wire cars and, you know, deal with electrical issues. And, um, he worked as the electrician on a TV show in a town 20 minutes away. Then they come once a year and they close this garage down for three months. So they close the business out, pay the business owner a big chunk of cash, film the show, and then move out. Like three weeks before production's about to begin, the owner of the building's holding them ransom. Well, I'm not going to close my business until you pay me more. So PJ overhears this production call and goes, oh, my mate Ant's got a perfect workshop and I was moving out. So I was being exited from that premises under a compulsory purchase order because a supermarket is going to level it and it's going to become a supermarket car park. In other words, I got a uh, letter in the door yeah. going, move. Like, get out of here. So I was doing pretty well then, so I managed to buy a place and I was slowly moving from the soon-to-be-demolished workshop into my new, I bought a farm. So I was converting these old barns into a unit. So PJ comes around one day and goes, oh, when are you out of here? And I'm like, oh, I'm going to be out in like three weeks. He mm -hmm. goes, oh, great. Can we, you know, when are they knocking it down? I said, oh, they're not going to knock it down for six months. So it was perfect. They could wreck the place. Plus I had ramps and tools and compressed air, you know, plumbing all the compressors is a lot of work. So it was yeah. ready to go as a workshop. So um, PJ's like, would you be up for it? So I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Because it was, you know, it was going to be a big bit of cash. And I, I just bought a farm. So I was going to use some of the money to put into the farm and get new ramps. This guy, this producer phones me up and says, oh, yeah. And he was a dick as well. Yeah, I'm just coming out of London. Uh, I'm going to fly in. Uh, I'm just going to be like 10 minutes. I'll have a look. And he kept like going on about how much power have you got? How much, you know, what's the ampage? I'm like, I don't know. Just come and have a look. <laughs> like if it suits, it suits. If it doesn't, nobody's lost. Yeah. And this dude, like bad represent, he's like central casting for crappy TV producer. So this dude turns up for what was supposed to be 10 minutes and stayed the whole day. Then he comes back a couple of days later and he's like, hey, listen, we really like the premises, but can you come with it? Because I watched you for a day and the way you work with your team and the show needs a big team of mechanics off screen. Oh, to like so do you the could, building. So we could get, use your premises. You know, I had like a dozen people then. We could use your people. And then you'd be great as a kind of a, a sort of an on-screen mechanic because you explain stuff so well. Mm. And I'm like, no, like I wasn't ready. <laughs> I, like, I didn't want to be on TV. Plus the show wasn't very good. Um, anyway, so I then move, it didn't work out. They never rented my premises. Oh, they did. They sorted it out with the original garage. And then, um, a year later I get a phone call from the same freelancer. Hey, I'm now working on this show because no one in TV has a job. They go from show to show. Yeah. And I thought of you, do you want to have a, a chat? So by then I'd moved into the farm and they came up to the farm and they brought a sort of camera crew and spent four or five hours chatting and, you know, I was doing my normal job fixing stuff and they were like, oh, explain what you're doing. Explain carburetors while I'm fixing it. Oh, explain what you're doing. And then I got a call to go into London one day and they, uh, I, I walked into this boardroom with like six people and they went, watch this. And they played that four or five hours they spent with me 
into it. They cut it into an edit. Oh, cool. I said, we think you'd be really good on TV. Here's a contract. Can you let us know by Friday? And it was a, a show called For the Love of Cars on Channel 4, which is one of the, there's three big networks in the UK, ITV, BBC, Channel 4. Um, so it was a big deal. And it was a prime time, you know, 9pm um, show. And uh, I didn't even, I said yes there and then. I said, yeah, I'll do it. And then I walked out of the meeting and phoned up Louise, Emily and Archie's mum, my, my wife. Oh, I've agreed to a TV show. She's like, oh, I wonder where you've been. <laughs> oh, well, I went to London. You hate London. <laughs> Why are you going to London? Um, and, and yeah, I started filming three or four weeks later. The show went out and it was a huge success. Went straight to a season two. And then at the time, I, got, I then got asked to do some stuff for BBC. Yeah. Which is really rare, actually, because most hosts are tied to a network. You kind of don't share. Like if you're on Channel 4, yeah. you're not going to be on Channel 4 and BBC are effectively rival channels. So um, I was then doing a show for BBC at the same time I'm doing a show for, for Channel 4. And then I did a show called um, The World's Most Expensive Cars, where I followed RM Sotheby's auction around the world. Oh, that's cool. It was a co-production between BBC and Channel 4. They shared it, but it was the first shared production between BBC and Channel 4 ever. Wow. So it was, it was kind of cool. You were um, like the merger. I, yeah, I'm uh, the facilitator. <laughs> That's right. The margarine of the sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, I then got asked uh, six years ago by Discovery Network to move my life to America. Was that for Wheeler Dealers? Yeah, so Wheeler Dealers uh, was a British show. It actually goes into its 20th year next year. Yeah. Which is, think about it, how many TV shows last 20 years? Friends did 10. Bangos the Fury did 10. The only one that's lasted that long is Coronation Street again. Coronation Street's quite long. Is it still on? Yeah. Fuck, it's the longest running show, I think. Is that true? I think it's the longest running show. Ever? I think so. We don't have a fact checker here. We should fact check that. I'm pretty sure because my dad and mom used to watch it. And From remember, Canada. Yeah, and I remember just being like, what is this boring-ass show in the background? I always would hear it. My dad, I think, still watches Coronation Street. Wow. Dad, horrible taste in television. He but might be the only one. <laughs> he's the only person. Still just him. Yeah, keep it on the network. It's so, oh. But Wheeler Dealers, because when you joined Wheeler Dealers, if I remember correctly, you took over for another host, right? Yes, yeah, so it's a two-host show, a That's car right. buyer and a mechanic. Yeah. Um, and it, from the inception, I took over six years ago. So, you know, after 14 years, Mike Brewer was the car buyer and Ed China was the mechanic. And uh, I swapped out with Ed. That's right. So Ed chose to move on. And um, so I stepped into really big shoes. I mean, that show is huge. It has like such a massive oh, following. Huge. And I remember yeah, when you took that over, then there was, of course, there's always like the people who are in love with the traditional Oh, God, show, right? I, got, I got death threats. Right, because all of a sudden you're, now they're, you know how humans are, we're like used to a thing and we like the thing. Dumb. The answer's dumb. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. A lot of humans are dumb. And then when you came in, you had to basically like prove to win people. Win over, yeah. When was the first time that you experienced like the the drama of being in the spotlight, like the drama of television, like yeah. being a celebrity, I guess. Taking over Wheeler Dealers, and just for context, it's the biggest car show in the world. It's massive. But for Discovery Network, if you think about all the content Discovery produce yeah. for 200 global territories in multiple languages, it's the number one most distributed show on Discovery Channel. Which is wild. Because number one. I don't think it, like... 
cerebrally, I think people would be like, oh, like a nature show. Or, a, or Shark Week. Right. Or, oh, yeah, yeah, Shark or Week. Or finding gold in the mountain. Or right. fishing, deep sea fishing. fish one, yeah. Or 90 Day Fiance <laughs> is their biggest show. That's the biggest like, show? I guess the biggest ratings. But the most, but it's not in Poland. Yeah. And it's wild because in Poland, Wheeler Dealers is a big deal. Wow. Polish people love it. And in Australia and in, um, and I know when it hits territories because I get messages from, so Turkey, for example, I know it's on in Turkey right now because I get tons of Turkish people. Oh, I'm watching it on TV. Oh, that's cool. And it's funny because they're watching it like three years later. Oh, yeah. So, so um, they're talking to you about whatever you built that about season. About a car from three yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. But it's um, it's remarkable. So it goes out to like 200 territories in 52 languages. And I've engaged with my Spanish <laughs> or my... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, who was the other guy? There was a guy who plays me... Actually, I think it might be Spanish. And he like sends me a message. Oh, I'm you in Spanish. I thought I'd say hi. Oh, like he's the he's voiceover. The voiceover. <laughs> so I've That's got multiple amazing. voiceovers. I play you in Spanish. It's wild to me. But, you know, I travel a lot and I've been in airports where, particularly foreign people, would be like, oh, my God, I saw you on Wheel of Dealers. Yeah, like my buddies who are total car fanatics are like, I saw you in a picture with Ant. Like when we had that brief. Oh, the We Might Be Gay Lovers picture. Yeah, 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 yeah. For some context, <laughs> we everybody, be, we? we were in a picture together in on Ants, and then I shared it, and then a, some, magazine. some magazine that loves doing no research was like, <laughs> Mark and Ant are yeah, gay we, lovers. Yeah, we must be, uh, must be gay, we must be dating. <laughs> and the irony yeah. is, is only, was it only a few weeks before, Another magazine ran a story that I was dating your fiance. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> she posted a. We were in Sedona together, and she posted a picture with you, a story. She reposted your story, and someone's like, "Who's mystery blonde?" And and literally right before, uh, yeah, like uh, you're in they, the background. <laughs> if they had just gone to your Instagram, they would have seen us three together in a picture. <laughs> it's us. You couldn't make, but that was my first experience of experiencing how ridiculous. The news is literally that person, whoever that news person was who just wanted to grab headlines, didn't even look at her profile or mine or yours to do any. It was just like, can we catch a headline? Yeah, it's absolute clickbait. So like for you, when was the first time you experienced like what it means? Because because I really think like part of celebrity or part of like fame, let's say the reason that it generally compensates relatively well is because you are trading anonymity. Oh yeah. More, and I think that's, more than that. that's, I don't even know that that's worth the money sometimes, but like, that's why I think people get paid and also people project all their bullshit and like, yeah. Yeah. So they, well, the it's first? the same. If you put your head above the parapet, you are going to get shot at, right? That's the head. And, right. um, there's so much scrutiny, and I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about I feel particularly sorry for cele female celebrities. Yeah. Constantly scrutinized for the way they look, the way they talk, the way they dress. They're not entitled to make a mistake. Um, you know, we're humans. We bumble our way through this life all the time. Yeah, and like, how are you ever going to wear clothes that always look perfect in the perfect? Like, they always catch them in pictures where they got three chins, they got a nipple yeah. out, they got, yeah. you know, like, it's like they want to catch them in their humanity, which is really sad. But that point is that the reader feels better. That's oh, so well, if Kim Kardashian trips and falls, like right. me. Yeah, like humanizes them. Partly. 
But there is this weird, you know, I, I really fear for us, we are globally in a mental health crisis, for sure. Oh, yeah. Young we people. were pre-COVID and now we're, it's just exacerbated, especially because of technology. And I don't think the press helps. Particularly, no. a particularly a celebrity press, because celebrity press is so salacious. It's so headline grabbing. They go after the worst parts. And I would actually say, relatively, I've been very, very lucky, but... But there is a, a massive lack of fact-checking. Yeah. The fact that they just write stuff. And my mum sent me a message. This was about, I don't know, three or four months ago. Super mad at me. Because on the front cover of a very prominent, glossy magazine is a picture of Rene and me and confirmation that we got married. Confirmed. <laughs> Conf- and, it, and No, and it was literally confirmed. And it was, the detail was so bizarre. It was like 23 guests, handwritten vows, in England. And I'm like, I haven't been to England for a year. <laughs> Ren's not been for a couple of years. It was your stand-in, like, your Spanish stand-in. But exa- yeah, 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 yeah. Hola. See. <laughs> <laughs> <Si. laughs> and of course, I then say to my mum, like, mum, don't read it. It's, yeah. it's not true. Um, and then two weeks later, the very, very same magazine then does a story about rumours have it that we get engaged. And I'm like, how can you factually <laughs> do a story saying we're married and then contradict yourself two weeks later that we're engaged? <laughs> Who, like... How is that even allowed? How does that even pass the, like, I guess, what would they call it? The cutting room floor or whatever the term is in media. But when you look at the amount of stress that that type of stuff creates for people, you know, for the people being lied about, especially because you face the vitriol, what I've noticed is people automatically sort of fall in love with the idea of the character of the celebrity from their shows usually. And then if so, if someone's in conflict with that person, there's like a weird sea of attacks. Oh, I've been subject to the weird sea of attacks. I've had people write me by proxy that oh, I no. should have a conversation with you to help you out. You oh, know? no. Okay, well, let's have it. I was like, listen, my gay lover, he's <laughs> yeah, fine, yeah. okay? Yeah. Renee's a side chick. Yeah, okay. Right, okay. Yeah. But, you know, like I, I remember getting them in mm. sort of the heights of... I'm sorry. No. Bye-bye. No, nothing to apologize for. I But when I'd get them, I'd be like, wow, people are actually crazy. Yes. And they don't read beyond the, the clickbait. clickbait. No, they don't. Because I know that if you go into the details of it, it's pretty clear that there should be compassion in all the conversations. Yeah. I've had some waves in my life where I've been subjected to a barrage of hate. Taking over Wheeler Dealers is a good example. Was that the first time, by the way? I mean, the first time of any sort of volume of hate, right. you know, it was a consistent wave of, it was so bad. I, I had a, a bodyguard. Because you took over a role in a TV show yeah, as a mechanic and people loved the idea and the previous person so much yeah, and the, and the, that you and, had to get a bodyguard. Yeah, I had a bodyguard for two weeks. That's fucking crazy. Like I'd go to Ralph's and he'd be 10 yards behind me. Probably. I had, def- like- I had death threats. When you took my partner, Mike, her, his daughter, Chloe, was at university at the time. And she got a handwritten note under her door at the dormitory that she was going to get killed. I had someone send me a letter saying they were going to stone my children. Stone them. I mean, at least use a more appropriate modern day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. We're going to put them in front of an audience. Yeah, I I had done. And, you know, you just have to. Stone them. Yeah, you just have to. Only in the UK. Medieval. I know, yeah, but, so yeah, I think the Wheeler Dealer 
uh, is my first, you know, real, because it, it lasted so long. Oh, it did? Oh, my God. Because the problem is I get announced as a Wheeler Dealer host to replace Ed. To produce a show takes months. <laughs> right. So it look, took like six months. Oh, to like get out and people be okay with you. But because, and, of course, no, yeah. in the absence of a, I was always like, oh, he's never going to be Ed. You Or you forced Ed out or how dare you take over Ed. But, of course, no one's seen the show yet. <laughs> so yeah. when the first show went out, I then had a U-turn. Oh, oh, actually, it's all right. Because, <laughs> of course, people put the fear when there's no answer. Yeah, yeah. So everybody thinks their beloved show's been destroyed because this new guy stepped in. And yeah. I'm sure it's the same, you know, if you change the lead in a drama, which they often have. Yeah. Because, uh, which they have, by the way, for Blippi. Do you know about Blippi? What's Blippi? Um, you, you're about to be a dad. You're going to know about Blippi. <laughs> Blippi's a, like a children's entertainer. He's a YouTuber. And they changed? Well, he's like... You know, glasses, hat, very kind of animated, squeaky voice. He's like the Pee Wee Herman of today. Millions of hits on YouTube, gets picked up by Netflix and starts this. I mean, we've got we've got Blippi Toys, Blippi Lunchbox, Blippi's a thing. And then one day, Blippi goes on, but it's not Blippi. And I'm telling you, Hudson's like, that's not Blippi. Looks like Blippi, <laughs> sounds like Blippi, dresses like Blippi, but it's a different actor. It is hard to switch a host and then that show still carry the momentum. So and that was the fear. You know, 14 years. I take for, Well, for more context, it moved to America a year before. So it was always shot in the UK. Ed and Mike moved it to America and did a season. And they were subjected to an awful lot of abuse. Just from moving to the From moving to America. Wow. How dare you go be successful? It's our British show. So the British fan base were like, fuck you for moving it to America. And they're like, but we'll still watch it. But we're mad. Yeah. That yes, they hate watching it. Yeah. Um, in fact, ratings went through the roof. Yeah. I mean, is that sort of the next logical step, I guess, from a, a production and TV to move from UK to US? It was for them. I mean, it was obviously the year before I joined. There was obviously a uh, a practical reason why that move happened. Yeah. Um, and for me, a car builder, the practical reason is obvious. Buying a 1960s car in California versus rainy England. It's a, a better, little it's a better car. Yeah. It's not rusty. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, plus the car culture in California is amazing. Yeah, and there's, there's more, so many cars here. Exactly. Like, um, you can and, find these sweet barn finds with oh, yeah. patina on them. I mean... And then from a, the 65 Mustang that exactly. I got from you. And then up for a production perspective, there's so much more access here. You know, there's big studios, there's crew, lighting, you know, it's. Yeah. So I think production levels were raised. The show's a better quality show. The viewer gets a better quality show. Um, there's a more, you know, diverse breadth of cars. Um, so the move was ultimately positive. And then after the first season, it was overwhelmingly it U-turned. I was like, oh. Actually, this is really good. And whew. and then you come in. No, when I, yeah, when I came yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. But it took a couple of shows. Like, well, I was very lucky because the first car that I did, episode one, was a knockout car that the Brits particularly love. So rare out here, but we found one. So it was... Oh, uh, that's smart. Yeah. So um, we, we sort of set off the bat with a really big car. So most of the Brits, I mean, even if you're, I hate wheeler dealers, I'm never watching, as soon as you go oh, it's Naris Cosworth. They're like, all right, fine. Well, I'll watch that one. It was like <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, and then yeah. I had a lot of people, and I did something really controversial on the car as well. I added a third wing, which was how it was originally designed. And that's like sacrilegious. You don't change the perfect car. Right. But I did what the original design, because it turns out my friend, Frank, designed the car. 
Oh, so you walked them through the well, original like, design actually had it there. No, the wing. bizarre thing was is Frank happened to be in America. So he came and stayed at my house. Because I'm like, yeah, well, like with like, you, I'm like, yeah, come and stay. So Frank comes and stays for three or four days. And I just, in passing, mentioned to him, because in Wheeler Dealers, we do about eight cars at the same time. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm doing a Ford Cosworth. And Frank goes, oh, it's my first car I ever designed. I'm like, what? Yeah, I was 19, flown to Munich, worked for Ford. I designed the rear end of the Ford Cosworth. And I'm like, what? And he's a big designer. You know, he's designed the BMW Mini, the BMW X5, the new Fiat 500. Uh, first design director at Ferrari, designed oh, wow. the Maserati MC12, uh, the Ferrari F40. I mean, th- this guy is a design legend, yeah. probably the most influential designer of our generation. But he started with the Cosworth. So I'm like, will you come and see it? Like in the show, yeah. I need a, oh, I've got the original designer and just kind of sign it off. So he comes and films. He goes, yeah, of course. So we get Frank turn up in the workshop, walk around and go, guys, you've done a great job. And just as a throwaway, he sat at the back and he's like, God, it's so weird looking at it. Because I originally designed it with a a third wing because I was inspired by the Red Baron triplane. And I'm like, what do you mean? This is the iconic Cosworth. No, no, I I actually, there's supposed to be a wing in the middle. And he got a pen and he went, look, I'll show you. (laughs) And he drew it. I'm like, guys, we have to put the wing on it. So it's the only third wing Cosworth. What? Yeah. Which is part of the original design that never made it. And then it would have made it, but the accountant at Ford pulled the wing out. Because of cost. Purely because of cost. That's it? That's it. So it still worked with two, but Frank wanted it to be, the, the, the third one was a vanity wing. And of course, these are the stories that the fans fall in love with. Like, talk about... Oh, yeah. serendipity hey yeah, my, yeah like synchronicity first. of like the dude staying at your house yeah, designed happens. the car that is going to be an episode i mean you can't draw that shit up that you can't plus the car i think and i can't remember the numbers but in the u.s there might be 10 wow that ever made it to the u.s wow so that episode all knocked lined it out up. and then first season crushes crushes it the first season with you in it crushes it crushes it yeah and i think because all this drama and that's that's the i guess that's the powerful side of press right is that well they're gonna amplify that eyeballs and eyeballs so you've got all the haters going yeah let's go watch this guy fail shit it's good you know that is so interesting what you're saying because i think that's so true of like that idea if it bleeds it leads in the media wow but they're really like it's true let's bleed them out like they will exploit the smallest thing yes, in order to get more eyes on something. And I think that's part of the monetization problem with not just media. And I think just to touch on the political uh, aspect that media really fell in love with the divisive nature of Trump because, and this is my own opinion, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I'm Canadian. Leave me alone. But my point is saying that. <laughs> I'm British. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't Canadian and British. But what I noticed as a Canadian watching what was going on was that never before had Twitter blown up more and never before had now media was getting way more views because they were publishing this really divisive character. And again, I'm not partisan in this. I'm just saying it was, it really showed the the amplification of tribalism, the amplification of oh, the ideology. Oh, mentality is bonkers. Right, which I think is just, can, we're feeling the continued pain of that um, in aspects of everything. That's what happened with COVID too, this like amplification of division and separation and ideology and thought. And like, if you're, if you're not 
dramatically pro-vaccine, you must be Republican. If you're pro, yeah. you're woke and left. Like there's all these language we use to put people in these boxes so we can somehow organize the world a little more, make it more predictable. And I, I think like when I look at what the media does, I've not experienced what you've experienced. Well, you did. You were my gay lover for a I mean, but weekend. that was nice. It was know? nice, yeah. And it was, yeah. Because, you know, you had your friend who didn't get to be your gay lover. Who oh, was yeah. Posted. Oh, Chris. Chris, that was funny. A few days later, Chris was posted. No, a few days before. Oh, he, po right. he posted an identical picture on the same beach. You're right. Not a single pickup. <laughs> didn't make the press. Um, and Chris texted me like. <laughs> he was so funny. Well, am I ugly? Why? Am, am why I, couldn't I be your lover? Yeah, it yeah. was really funny. But yeah, like going from the experience of that, like the Wheeler dealers experience to what you've now experienced, is it different or worse or more amplified? Like, or is it just like the same shit? There is definitely a physical shift during and post COVID. And I haven't analyzed this, but my guess is COVID gave people more time. Yeah. You know, they didn't go to work. They sat at home, they scroll and there's a hangover from that. And I think positively, we as a society have realized you don't have to go to an office to do your job right. successfully. So, you know, the nature of not being commuting to work for an hour means you've got two hours extra a day. And I think a lot of people have fallen into the scrolling and let's have yeah. a look. And, you know, the way that phones target us nowadays is oh. if, you, if you have an interest in celebrity or divorce or whatever, that's what you're going to be fed. You know, same with politics. So I feel like post-COVID is the kind of, it's created the perfect storm for people to have access to hatred because that's what they're being, the, if it bleeds, yeah. it leads. So if that's, that's what, what you're- keeps you on. Yeah. So if that's what you're you know, being consumed, and that's what you're being targeted with, ultimately the clickbait works. Like it works. Yeah. You know, and there's been so many articles and I now, you know, I don't read any of the press now. It just, there's just no point. But occasionally I'll have- and my family, it's funny, it's taken them years, my mum in particular, it's taken her years to realise that there's an agenda that isn't necessarily true. Mm. So, you know, when she texts me, I can't believe you got married, you haven't told me, and I'm like, mum, it's not true. Mm. What do you mean it's not true? It's on the front page of a magazine. Mum, it's a lie. <laughs> yeah. It's just not true. Well, why are they allowed to print that? That's a great mom, question. we've had a conversation about this before. Yeah. If you want to raise something with me, well, this magazine said that, or just don't read it. Like your starting point should be, I'm not going to judge. But of course, the public, and there's 330 million people in America, will hang on to something that's probably a symbol of their own frailties. Right. You know, their like, fears. Their... Yeah, or yeah, whatever. They, you know, whatever. Yeah, they're, 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 yeah they're, their um, prejudices are going to be played upon by the clickbait headline. And, you know, and, you know I, I, I've got quite a, um, I'm not saying I'm outspoken about it, but I'm very, very, uh, I have a very strong stance on divorce. You know, we're in a society that the majority of marriages fail, which says, statistically, there's all these adults running around. Let's just choose California. More than half of them have been subject to divorce. Yeah. And divorce is hard. It's, it's trauma. It's hard. It's trauma. So already you've got an audience of half the adults in this country that you can target with divorce clickbait. Mm. because they're already... And they're pain. Yes. Because who teaches us, other than like Gwyneth Paltrow, when they went through the divorce, I think it was like the conscious uncoupling. Mm. Marianne Woodward Thomas has a book, uh, Conscious Uncoupling, 
Kylie and I, when we broke up, it was very intentional in how we did it. Like, that's not the model I observed or like see in the news or like see is like how to leave something with love. I mean, that's how foreign is that? Most people, as you're saying, experience this dramatic trauma from divorce. And then when other people get divorced, especially in the media, their anger and their unprocessed grief gets gets fed upon. Yeah, but that's half. Yeah, that's crazy, right? Like when you put it into those numbers, it's like, oh, there's a lot of people who are going to take a side or going to, you know, whatever I mean, it might be. If, so it's so, so funny because I'm a bit of a nerd and there was a reason why I was looking at some stats the other day. Yeah. And if you think about it, if it's like in California, I think I think it's 60% of marriages end in divorce. Wow. Only 14% of the world is vegetarian. So think about that. There's more divorced people than there are vegetarians. <laughs> There's three times the amount of divorced people. Yeah. So if you're a journalist and you've seen the shocking headlines about like don't eat cows or dairy yeah, is bad yeah, or whatever yeah. it is, divorce is an easier target. Way easier. In which case. And they're if, happening. And they're happening. Plus, so, you know, and you know, you're not immune to divorce because you're uh, on TV or you're a celebrity. Right. So you look at these high profile divorces. I mean, Poor Brad and Jennifer and Angelina. I mean, they have just constantly, I'm like, Jennifer's been pregnant for 30 years now. (laughs) How has nobody worked it out that none of this is true? Um, It's just wild to me that there's still, you know, I'll go into a supermarket and there's still Brad Pitt. And I'm like, really? Is there nobody else to go after? But if it resonates, and for whatever reason, you know, those three became a kind of a divorce figurehead. And we still talk about, and you know, for them, in their world, the reality of it is probably it was like a (laughs) few days, it didn't work out. They had a conversation and all of a sudden it's like, blah, 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 said this. But I mean, for her, you know, you think about Jennifer Aniston, that's a decade later, they're still talking about her and Brad. Could you imagine if that was your life? No, I mean, there's nothing sacred about it, right? Like there's no privacy, there's no... No. But that's the thing is I'm like, is it worth trading that sometimes? Like, do you consider that when you think of... I think the problem is... when you're in the height of these things, are you like... Yeah, you do. It's really interesting because I... um, Because you can't undo it. You can. I think you can. Tell me more. You see celebrities step away. Ren's brilliant at it. No social media. Yeah, I really envy her with that. And it's, it's interesting because, for example, I get a lot of hate. Let's say, um, you know, a story goes out in the press and there is a population that thinks that being led by me, like I want to be paparazzied or I want to be in the press. Like you plant it. Right. So there's that narrative that exists. But when you think about it, I spend my entire life saying no to stuff. Like, I, you know, whenever somebody says, well, you chose to be a celebrity. And I'm like, have you ever seen me go to a red carpet event in 10 years? I've probably been to three. I'm saying no to the other 97. Do you ever see me go to glitzy celebrity events? I get invited all the time. I could go to a celebrity event every week. I'm constantly saying no. There's no merit because, of course, that's the bit, the the duck legs under the water, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Everybody sees the... The three. Oh, you're on television. Yeah. Or you went to that event. Or you tripped and fell. Do you know I've been walking successfully <laughs> for many, many years now? Should we talk about that? <laughs> I think th- this perfect storm, particularly post-COVID, particularly with the rise of social media, um, it's fueled this angst and anger that makes people feel better because somebody of prominence is struggling. It's familiar and it's it's the lowest hanging fruit for the editor because let's just step back and look at the practical sense of writing news. 
and you're a journalist at a magazine and you ha- you have to write 20 news stories every week and you know you have your own life and mortgage and kids and all this kind of stuff can you imagine being that person well Brad did this right um, of course, and of course you're then measured well we sold loads of magazines that Brad was on and that's just lost more Brad more Brad um and it's just a business model but what's really reassuring for me and you know, over you know, I've had a couple of waves in the last in my six years in America. I've had three big waves. Wheeler Dealers was a big wave, actually four. My marriage and divorce in the UK. No, here. Yeah, my relationship with Ren. They're the kind of the four big waves. Actually, probably five if you consider the the, the latest Hudson issue. Yeah. So in those waves, I've experienced the same sensation, but I'm still reassured that a big, big chunk of the population, I'm talking more than half, have seen through it. Mm. So there is still, and I still have faith, that an impartial, mature adult has gone, I heard this, and if I'm interested, I looked further, and I reasoned that actually the, the, the clickbait, the clickbait was, was fake. Um, and I get an awful lot of support for by people that have actually made the effort and I don't know why, but, you know, maybe it's because they've got more time or they just look a layer further. And it's, you know, when I've had hatred and I don't, like, I've never talked publicly and I never will about, you know, some of my private issues. But a couple of times I've responded to comments like somebody will say something derogatory and I'll go, I'll never call them out. I'll go, well, have you thought about this or mm-hmm. should you look at that? And overwhelmingly, they've come back and apologized. Wow. Overwhelmingly, I've had people go, oh. Well, I read this and she said that and I believed this. But now I've actually looked and I've never openly gone, these are the facts. I've just gone, why don't you look at that or why don't you read that document? And I've allowed them to kind of work out their own and overwhelmingly, like the the, the peak of the hate I got is because people didn't read it or they just assumed or they fell for the clickbait or they fell for the PR exercise. And then, you know, most people are like, because people are generally reasonable. And if you deal with them reasonably. Yeah, you know, it's easier to be enraged than it is to be curious. Yeah, that's it. Curiosity is the word. But, you know, I think of if I'm looking through, which I know this isn't the right lens to look through, but if I'm looking through the media uh, in the context of gossip and all that shit through the lens of integrity, which, again, I recognize those don't necessarily live in the same place. I'm sure there are some journalists who have it in that space. I hope so. Yeah. But, you know, when I look at it, I go, like, they're not concerned about the wreckage that they leave. And that's the thing is, like, the emotional pain they cause people. It's brutal. Right? Children. You know, like, what is it like to be, like, throughout your career to also be a father? Like, you you have your two kids in the U.K., it's brutal, yeah. Yeah. And the problem is with, um, you know, my daughter's 19. Yeah. My son's 16. They're adults. They behave like adults. They have access to Google and social media. And they've been targeted. Um, and it's really, really awful because um, somebody in the press has the power to create a narrative that can affect your children. Right. That's it. So I, I'm very lucky. I have a very close relationship yeah. with Emily and Archie. We are like best friends. So I'm very lucky that, um, and I'm also a communicative dad. So we talk throughout our entire childhood, we've talked about everything. Mm -hmm. And so there's no topic off table. So if Amelie says, oh, my friend showed me this, 
can we talk about it? And I'm like, let's talk about it. I'm comfortable that they're being schooled through the bullshit and they now see through the bullshit. You know, they are, and, and I'm comfortable as a dad, I've armed those two children of how to navigate that. Because social media is going to become so much more prominent. It's going to be part of every day. You know, every kid's going to be on social media in a good way. You know, they're going to be able to create community, meet people that they've never met before, communicate with people in different countries. There's so much positives for it. That's what it should be there for. I feel like Amelie and Archie are really armed for that. So they're going to be able to, um, you know, use it as a tool for what it's intended for, to Mm -hmm. to build community and to share. Well, they grew up with you as a father where you weren't a celebrity yet right like yeah i mean for art i mean i've done 10 years on tv now so for archie he was only six yeah but for amelie amelie's a you know she's such a switched on mature woman and you know we now have we're at the point now where we almost joke about stuff Mm. oh i saw this the other day (laughs) or my friend showed me this and i'll be like oh and we kind of eye roll and move on what do you think you credit that to like as a father you know like as a father to be I'm uh, curious what what um, you sort of, when you look back, is maybe some of the greatest parenting advice you have. Or- well, I'm really lucky because I've been able to raise children in different seasons of my life. So raising Amelie as a 20-year-old and Hudson as a 40-year-old, I'm able to do it differently. Yeah. I'm so sorry, Amelie, you were the guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening, Amelie. Yeah, if you're listening, Amelie, I... Gave it everything. And you worked out so great. So it's yeah. perfect. So I feel like the best, you know, the best advice I would give any, particularly any dad, is um, just be, pre- just presence is all a child wants. You're leading by being present. And I was a shift working tactical firearms officer playing football at the weekends with Amelie and Archie. And they became part of my world. Right, it's football weekend, off we go to football. I'm working nights this week. Daddy lays in. And then now, you know, particularly when, when I share custody with Hudson, my time with Hudson's really, you know, I, 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 delib- I manipulate my work around him now. And it's not because, you know, on a Wednesday afternoon, I want to do, I just want to be there when he comes back. So when he walks in the door, I'm the first face. And, yeah. and we have, there's a real intimacy with my children as well. Like we're all huggers. We cuddle, we're tactile. And it's such a shame. I see so many, um, parents that don't have that intimacy like when you become a dad that those first few years are really really important like hug and kiss and like i think that's really cool archie's a 16 year old boy we still hug i give him a head massage and it's now a laughing joke because as a baby i used to be able to put him to sleep with a head massage instantly and he'd be like <laughs> but i still do it now that's funny as an adult you know it's still the those touches still mm. are like you remember them as a kid, as yeah. an adult, so they're soothing. But then you're like, my dad's massaging my head. Like, you yeah, know? there is none of that. Oh, it's my dad. No, like, that's cool. Um, and you know, you've spent time with Hudson. He and I are we just orbit around each other. He just hugs and grabs, and you know, we are we're a pair. Oh, he's so cute. Yeah, he's a cool kid. What is the main change then from being a 20 year old father to being a 40 year old? Like, what is the the one thing that the feedback or the experience you took from being a younger father to... I think I'm super calm now. I read a really interesting article, it was only last week, about disciplining children. Imagine if you're a child, let's say Hudson's age, you're three years old, and you're losing your shit over something. And it could be anything. You 
haven't got your toy or whatever it is. And the amount of parents that are told that that's misbehavior, don't do that, go to your room. Actually, that we we have to do the opposite. Like, I understand. Come mm-hmm. here, it's, it's going to be okay. Because in their world at that moment, you know, toddlers are egocentric. That's not their fault. It's DNA. Right. It's, yeah. it's genetically, it's just, yeah, they're, they're egocentric and he doesn't realize that there's other people. So to reinforce discipline at, uh, in a three year old that's really sad about something, I think is really damaging. So I'm super kind and calm with Hudson. And as a result, he is incredibly disciplined. Like he takes himself to bed because he knows that when he's ready, he gets to read two or three books. Oh, yeah. So every night, and it's always Wizard of Oz, by the way, he loves Wizard of Oz. <laughs> so we get, so he's got like 30 books in this bookshelf. Always. And I would always say, right, brush your teeth and then choose your, and I'll always say choose two, knowing he chooses three. <laughs> <laughs> and it's always Wizard of Oz. And as a result of that, there's actually, there's less discipline needed. Yeah. Because he feels safe. And there's like, trust, there's presence, there's. Yeah. He knows that. That's my routine, and I go brush my teeth, and I go to bed. And he's got one particular book that walks through the bedtime routine, and then he has the little checkoff board with the magnet. I mean, that checkoff board worked within a week. He's like, "Can we bath now?" <sighs> oh, well, those started like showers. Hudson's become a shower king. He loves showers. Yeah. Oh my god, I will put him in the shower, and he'll like close the door on me, and he'll say, five more minutes," <laughs> and he'll shower on his own, and he just likes the shower, and then he plays with his toys, and then. I'd, you know, I'd be sort of pottering around and you know, brushing my teeth and getting ready. And then he, when he's ready, he'll go, okay, you can come in now, daddy. Then we'll shower together. Oh, that's funny. But he's like washed himself and he just loves a shower, that kid. It's really bizarre. So now I give him a choice. I let him choose. Do you want a bath or shower? And occasionally, like every sort of two weeks, he'll, he might go, bathtub, and we'll bath. He's but in the showering. Loves a shower every night. Loves it. Really hot as well. He's, is he uh, a footballer too? He yeah, he's actually got really great coordination. He's brilliant on a scooter um, ever since he was 18 months old. I mean, at 18, he was letting go of the handlebars, doing scootering on one leg. I mean, he's a very, very gifted scooterer. Yeah. Scooterer? I think that scooter, sounds right. Scooterer. Scooter-y. You know, I play football still and he comes to the games and he can really kick a ball, yeah. And then in the house, we have a little softball and the kitchen door's my goal and the, uh, the, the, the little cupboard where the shoes go is his. So we, you know, he'll just occasionally go. Set it down. Let's go. It's time. And yeah, it's time. And we'd do that at least every two or three days. We would play that little soccer game in that little bit of hallway there. That's awesome. So yeah, I think he's going to be sporty. And Amelie and Archie are incredibly sporty. Are any of them interested in car building or anything? No, they like cars, but they're not. Hudson's probably the most interested. He had like, he loves his favorite toys is toolkit. He loves fixing stuff. And I brought one of my Radford cars home to do some tinkering at home. And he fully helped. That's cool. He knows what a Phillips screwdriver and a flathead is. He knows what a spanner is. He knows how to use it. He has his own little drill. Wait, what's a spanner? (laughs) It's like a wrench, but with class. With what? Class. (laughs) With class. I'm like, what is a spanner? Is that like a crescent wrench? wrench? A wrench, yeah. Just regular wrench. Yeah, it's a wrench. On spanners in the UK. What's next then? Like you have Radford. I'm doing some TV at the moment. What's the new, are you allowed to say what new show is? I probably am. So I'm, you know, Radford, we're filming Radford's second season. Right on. Which is cool. Yeah. Um, I'm doing a television show, building an aeroplane. Oh yeah, that's right. So I started that quite a few months ago. um, And I have partnered with Tanner Faust, 
the uh, world drift champion who flies. So I've really got into flying the last few, probably the last 18 months. So you're like flying planes now? Yeah. What's I'm that? building a plane. Like a single prop kind so, of thing? Yeah, single propeller, two-seater. It's called a Vans RV-14. Is it like a Cessna kind of, like conceptually? Similar, it's a little bit smaller. It's more of a sort of a stump plane. It's very oh, agile. Geez. Yeah. yeah, it's 250 miles an hour. What's the range on it? A thousand miles. Oh, damn. Yeah. So you can cruise. I can shoot to the track. So, so I have a racetrack, in, which you've been to in Phoenix. Yeah. Like a, that, that, that's the plan. I want to you know, shop around. I mean, Tanner does multiple movies. He's just finished John Wick. So he um, wait. There's a new John Wick coming. Sweet. That's is dope. that public? I don't know. Yeah, probably is. Ah. Yeah, yeah. There's so, already um, three. So. He literally flies to location, and you can land anywhere. You can land in the desert. So Willow Springs, which is a racetrack, a lot of the stunts. So Ford v Ferrari. He was in that movie. So he um, flew flew to Willow Springs in like twenty minutes. So he just gets in his land, plane. Does he the, have that plane? The vent. What is no, it? he has a four seater. It's called a Beechcraft Bonanza. Cool plane. But you're building a plane now. Yeah. Is it all similar, like conceptually, like how? The engineering aspects of a plane are very similar to a car, really similar. With a car, you need it to stick down. With a plane, you need a lift. Yeah, there's a starter motor, an alternator, yeah, fuel injection. All this stuff. Yeah, speedo. That's so cool. And for those of you uh, watching or listening, I did do the training course at Radford. Yeah, in, you did. In Phoenix. And... I gotta say, I think everyone should do one. I was thinking like for kids, like not kids, but like teenagers, because you learn the limits and also you're trained on how to react and how to hit the brakes, slam the brakes, steer. It was super cool and it was progressive. I think it was two or three days. I can't remember. I think it was two or three. Yeah, it's great. But by the end of it, you're... A more confident and safer driver, yeah. Oh my God. I actually got onto the interstate and I wanted to be like I was driving in the on the track because your brain is just so switched on yeah yeah. um and you're driving like 700 horsepower dodge hellcat chargers yeah dodge hellcat challengers challengers no they're chargers they're chargers they're insane they're like that was fun yeah they're pretty bulletproof yeah so if you're really love cars go do the radford racing training or if you have a young person Mm -hmm. like 15 to 18 it will really, it really, really will make them a better driver. There was a couple of teenagers in my course, yeah, who were taking it, and I was like, "This is cool." If I was, that'd have been sweet to do as a kid. I'm sure my parents, I think conceptually, they would have been afraid that I was learning the limits of a car, but it would have actually made me a much oh better much driver. better driver. Yeah, yeah. I think every child or young driver, sorry, should learn how to perform an emergency stop, just in your car, right? In a, go to a car park and just go to thirty and just anchor right oh that's what it feels like that's what i'm prepared to do that's what the car's capable of yeah i mean i grew up where it was snowy oh, so yeah. even then you have to <laughs> practice right and i remember they have that drift like oh, the, the sliding yeah, the, skid, the skid pan the car. skid machine or car that thing was super cool learning how to steer how to control a car if you start to skid yeah because yeah. of course if you hit a puddle oil um you know before that you'd probably crash yeah it was pretty neat especially learning like how to put your focus in the distance, like on a point that you steer naturally, you steer towards. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit of a mind fuck, but it was, but it's good. It's it was really super good cool. So you're building planes. Yeah. I just finished my fourth. I'm in the middle of writing a book. So I've, I've done three books and I love writing and it's my first fiction. Right on mm. your first fiction book. Yeah. I guess the, uh, 
serial killer police days are coming out. Ah. Uh, so that's really cool. You have you have other books though. Yeah, I've done three books. That's right. In the car space. When we were first speaking, when we hit record, we were talking about because you produced the last Haynes manual. I did, yeah. Haynes Haynes um Haynes is a kind of a it's part of the fabric of British automotive culture. Yeah. John Haynes, who founded it, he made his first manual was a, a little blue booklet, How to Build a Special. So a special is a car made up of just bits and pieces of other cars. Yeah. Like no particular origin. Um, and I'm a big fan of special building, so I built lots of one-offs. My book is the last ever Haynes, How to Build a Special. That's so cool. So it kind of brings everything full circle. Um, and yeah, I'm super proud of that. To be able to say I was the, the author of the last published Haynes book in history is pretty wild, actually. That's an incredible honor. Yeah, it really is. It really is an honor. It took a long time to write, but yeah. it's really cool. Yeah, I love writing. So you have a book. You have a sh- couple more shows coming out. Yeah, and I'm I'm doing um I'm actually filming next week, but I'm not allowed to talk about that, which is frustrating. Um, but I'll probably put a post up. But um, yeah, so I'm filming next week um, on another project. Ooh. Um, and um, I've been asked to do this really big. I guess it's more like a game show. And it's the first time I've like gone. Oh, maybe. So that's, that's like a combo. I haven't into said yet. a totally different avenue. Well, a lot of people. It's really strange in America because people love boxes. Yeah, I'm known as a car guy. Yeah, that but the sense. irony is, is I've done t- so many shows not about cars. Like I've hosted travel shows for the BBC, and live shows, and engineering shows. I do so much stuff outside of car space. Like I've done more construction and building than most people, and artwork and design. Um, but they're like, oh, that's the car guy. Yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. I get it. But you're going to be moving maybe into the game show space. There is. Oh, God, I've said too much. I'm like, shit. <laughs> You'll I, be the new I, I'm uh, get in trouble. Jeopardy host, maybe? Oh, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. I think you have to be reasonably um, good at Jeopardy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's exciting. It's really, you know, I, I've been very, very lucky. I, you know, every year consistently for a decade, I've been able to do two, three, four, five car, I'm sorry, TV shows a year, but it's not disrupted my actual job or my actual life. Yeah. And, you know, Radford, a company I founded with a couple of friends uh, a few years back, you know, I'm the CEO of Radford. My day is, you know, after this, I'm going to Radford and working and we're producing, you know, between sort of half a million and a million dollar supercars for clients all over the world. And it's a big business. Yeah. It's a huge, you know, huge business. We, you know, we're building... 24 of them right now of the lotus of that first yeah and we've got the next car you know we're about you know we're literally making a decision when do we announce the next car which we fully designed yeah and we have the third car lined up and you know we have there's some cool cars coming some cool cars yeah we've we've got staff and infrastructure and the the the, the running joke at radford is i'm hr (laughs) so so, um you know there's a big business so put aside any other you know being a dad or doing TV or writing books or traveling or anything like that. I have a job. Um, and that job's super important because it's, yeah, it's a big company. And we, you know, we've got some, and I'll tell you after we've stopped recording that, you know, the big Radford news and you're going to be like, what? Well, for everybody watching so they can stay apprised to all the things you're doing, where can they find more of you, follow you, all that kind of stuff? I, I mostly on Instagram. I do have a Twitter account, but I very rarely use it. Um, but on Instagram, at Anstead. At, 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 at underscore Anstead. And I'm pretty boring on there, though. <laughs> like, if you like cakes and mm. kids and 
cars, you're in a safe space. I think most people like all those things. Uh, we'll make sure that we link it out. Also, we'll link out Radford's uh, information. Also, Radford has an Instagram account. I feel like we're wrapping up because I've got some questions for you. Oh, shit. Yeah, what are your questions? Well, I, I want to talk about, you're, you're about to be a dad. I am about to be a father. How's it feel? You know, previous, so she's due in March. Kylie's due in March. March the... 14th. I'm a March baby. Are you? Yeah. What's your date? 28. Yeah, she's due. And, uh, you know, the first trimester, it's not really tangible yet. Like no, she, okay. it is for her, that's for sure. Um, but for me, being busy with work and creating and all that kind of stuff, I never really sat with the process of it, you know? And as I got to say, the time is flying now. Yeah. Kai said the other day that the first trimester felt like seven years because of how she felt. Like of course, a, for her. A baseline of nausea. But she doesn't realize that you're doing the hard work. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, right? she's growing the baby. I'm just thinking about it. And that's tough. Yeah. That's harder. It's harder. <laughs> but yeah, in the it's an interesting <sighs> exploration. You know, I'll ask someone like, what's the best book for a father to be? There's not generally a a sort of like Bible for the new father. I have a friend who <coughs> is like a child development parenting genius, and she suggested one book to me to start with. She's like, it's not a book, it's a library. And I'm like, all right. So now I'm in the mode where... You might write the book. I mean, that would be pretty cool. You'd be great at that. I think that'd be fun. You know, it's but it's interesting to be in the... Much like all my work previously is me learning as I'm... Like going and then writing yeah, about muddling through, right? Somehow, similar. somehow managing to cohesively pull it together, <laughs> right? And then like just telling people what I've learned, yeah. and that was the birth of my work. Let me tell you how easy that was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like going through a breakup and then just speaking about it, or yeah. like what was the process and how did I explore it? So as a father to be, yeah, there's nervousness for sure, which mm. is excitement, and then there's. You know, the only thing I can relate to even the concept of being a dad is having a dog. <laughs> That's the only thing I can... That's actually not a bad place to, put, to be, genuinely. Yeah. Yeah. And when I got Carl, I got to say, I was like, there was a part of me that resented him because all of a sudden my whole life was orienting around... Oh, wait. It's that, it's that on steroids. <laughs> That's what I mean. Is So I had to, I processed that just like being very conscious of how I was feeling now that I wasn't quote unquote free. So there's there's the death of being a couple and becoming a family and all that. So those are all the things that I'm sort of floating. But that's why, you know, I ask people like you who I admire as parents to be like, okay, what do I need? And presence, I mean That's the biggest thing. Yeah. Especially in a world where like literally these things are designed to steal your presence. Right. They monetize yeah. that. Yeah. And you realize like you and I both know a world pre-computers. We mm -hmm. know a childhood pre-computers. We know well pre-mobile phones. Right. And there's a part of me that wish, wants my child to know that world too first. But I don't know what it, I have friends whose kids are teenagers where they're like about to get a phone or that conversation's happening. Yeah. And I watch shows like the that documentary, The Social Dilemma. Oh, yeah. I saw that. Yeah. Brutal. None of those executives' but, kids have social media. Yeah, but well, that's the point is, but you have right. to arm your kid. Amelie and Archie are so empowered because they've been schooled through social media. They yeah. have it. They know how to use it. They don't engage in, in, a, in the wrong context. Yeah. Like the worst thing a parent can do is go like, no social media, I think. Right. 
Like Hudson's brilliant. He doesn't, I see these kids at restaurants that are on tablets. Hudson can sit at a table, have a conversation and have dinner. And I'm really proud of that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, he might steal your food, but you know, I look over at these table of the, you know, kids on iPads and I'm like, God, that's a real shame. And it's lazy. It's lazy parenting. Yeah. You know, I watch, I'll watch sometimes now that I'm so much more attuned to the parenting. Well, you know, it's coming. Yeah. Like a freaking tornado. Dude, in March. And especially how important the bond mother to child is and like being very mindful of what Kai needs to, because I know that the early part of the child development, of course, is important to have a relationship with dad, but how important it is for mom and Mm. baby to be like, but I told her I was going to get one of those fake boobs and get breast milk and try to get a primary. You could just not go to the gym. I'll be like, I was like, I'll go to the, I'll get a primary bond with the baby. And she's like, you're a fool. I'm like, no, I'll like spray your pheromone on it. And she's like, oh my God, this is terrible. Guys don't do this at home. Do you know what you're having? No. That's awesome. decided not to find out. I didn't know Ramley or Archie. You didn't either? No, but did Vardson. I heard there's just very, very few surprises left, you know? I like that you don't know. Yeah, I, I'm pretty excited about it. Like to catch the baby and be like, oh, hey. I feel like you're having a girl. You know what? We have that sense too. So, and we did go get an ultrasound, uh, of course, the, the like 20 week one. And the we told the ultrasound tech that we didn't want to know. And she like s- slipped a pronoun in there. And I, I was like, hey. She's like, no, I just use different terms. And I'm like, oh, do you? you? fuck up. And, that's, and then tried to go with the opposite after. And I'm like, oh, oh, I don't know. No. So I'm not actually sure. Maybe that is actually how it works. But yeah, we've had we've had the sense since the beginning that that it's a girl, which, I mean, I don't really care what I have. But it doesn't matter. As long as, you know, baby's healthy and all that stuff. It'd be cool to have a daughter. I'd very, be very, cool. lu- very lucky. Um, Emily is... Yeah, she's miraculous. She's just unbelievable. Yeah, she seems lovely. I haven't met her yet, but she's unbelievable. She coming over to the United States sometimes. Um, I yeah, they they come over a lot, and I go back a lot. Fact, I know yeah. you go back a lot. You've been back a lot lately. Yeah, yeah, it's been a lot. It's been a lot. You spend a lot of time on planes. Good thing you're going to start flying. I like time on planes. Are you going to be flying? Can you fly intercontinental? I would have to leap it or put bigger fuel tanks in. Would you do it? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, not yet. Yeah. So, I mean, becoming a dad, it's going to be, I just interviewed, um, Dr. Gabor Mate. He talks so much about early attunement, presence, attachment. Oh yeah. It's so important. Yeah. The trust, that trust. I was going to say earlier that it's when I'm paying attention to parents and I'm noticing like people on their phone as their kid is trying to communicate with them yeah and i think about how i could easily that could i could easily if i'm not mindful of that that could be something that occurs like any human and i'm like no i need to have a different way of orienting to technology now yeah agreed and communicate like and they're like they're an adult right like that's tell them important. the truth yeah because i think you know when you talk about your relationship with your kids that when you entered celebrity or entered, you already had a relationship with truth with them. Mm. Like they could come to you with what they were feeling, what they were thinking, what they were hearing. I want that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you see a parent use that ridiculous voice and pretend to be Mickey Mouse oh, or whatever, yeah. and they're like, 
you know, they're actually fobbing their kid off. And they understand way more than you. I mean, I'm yeah, watching them and I'm like, I watched my nephew. He's just over one. And I watch him engage with the world. And I'm just like, wow, like the way his brain works, how he tries to fit things. And then yeah, like even him using language or I'll say something to him or make a noise and he tries to mimic the noise. It's so brilliant to watch. Well, I'm excited for you. I think you, I think you'll be a great dad. You really, really will. Thanks. I'm, Don't fuck it up. Don't fuck it up. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing I watch. Like I remember how nervous I'd get when Carl, the dog, my dog, would walk along a cliff or do. And I'm like, I'm afraid when he eats certain things, you know? Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, now i got to deal with that with a human? That's the, the stakes are higher. <laughs> oh, it makes me like anxious to think about. But, you know, this is part of the reality of being mammal and being the midwife that we are working with said to Kai and I that, in pregnancy, one of the things you really recognize is that you are a mammal, like that you're a species. That yeah, you're, yeah. And I'm like, that's so true. And then one day you take a baby home, a child. You're like, it was there. Oh, sorry, it wasn't there and now it's there. <clears throat> oh, I feel so underprepared and no one's really told me much. And <laughs> right. I remember taking Emily home from the hospital and I stopped at the first traffic light and I didn't belt the seat in <laughs> so over my shoulder all i saw was the car seat going donk but of course i've done it ever since <laughs> yeah basically yeah. they're like little test like little crash dummies right oh well, i've heard with the second one you're second one's more, easy you're yeah like, you sterilize everything with the first one the second one you're like off the floor in the mouth <laughs> right like they're falling they're bumping into stuff you just recognize the resilience i would imagine yeah kids bounce generally which which i can recognize the truth in that but also that when i have a kid it's going to be a whole different experience so knowing how important it is for me to be regulated for my nervous system to be regulated all that stuff. I think that's the part where I'm I'm reading um, Conscious Parenting from Dr. Shafali. Right. And in it, she talks about how, like, you have to develop more capacity in order to be present with. Uh, yes. And I'm like, ooh, that's personal growth on steroids. Yeah, you do, yeah. You're going to be fine. You're, you're, you are going to be great, Dad. I already know that. Well, I'm excited about it. I'm very excited. I've seen you with Hudson. You're great with Hudson. And he likes you. Oh, Hudson's so cute. I know he likes. It's weird because he is so great with men. Is he? Well, look at like Reuben and Dan. Yeah. And, uh, he, he's, he's a guy's guy. In fact, uh, my, my friend Beverly and James came over and James, it took Beverly a couple of days, but James an hour. And they pointed out like, he's a dude's dude. Like, so get, you know, masculine energy is really good. Yeah. The development, the connection with dad, play with dad, you know, all that stuff. So important. And, uh, you know, my relationship with my father was so important to me as a kid, still is. But, you know, most of the conversations that I had about emotions or breakups, I had with my dad, which is, yeah, like I consider myself very blessed to have that as a template of uh, the relationship you can have with a father. It'd be interesting, though, to witness when they go through their first heartbreak, which I'm sure you've seen, not try to save them from it. Yeah. Poof. Helps that I've been there. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. It's wild to me, though, because right now Kai is growing a human. Like lungs, retinas, kidneys. I rolled my ankle two weeks ago and it's still sore. <laughs> like, <laughs> why it? does it take two months for me to fix my ankle? <laughs> right. She can grow a liver. <laughs> I, that's also a thing that she's a portal is like yeah. wild to me. Yeah. And yeah, the child's basically a parasite. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> feeding she off a host. growing. <laughs> She is feeding this parasite and going to deliver it. Like that is nuts that it is inside and going to be outside hanging out with us. And (laughs) And with an opinion. (laughs) Right, with probably lots if it's my child. And the other thing too that, because I'm Canadian, and I'm sure you experienced this in the UK, but in Canada, uh, mothers get one year of maternity leave. Do they get that in the UK? Oh my God. Is that true? Yeah, in Canada. They get a year. They get a year. That's amazing. But then I come to the States and I know people it's who like, get like two you, weeks, Yeah, you three need to be back weeks, at work Wednesday. Six weeks. Yeah. And I'm like, and, and we live in a, a society that really, especially now, the cost to live is quite high. And so often uh, there's two working parents and there's, you know, there's so much. And I'm like... I think of child development and how that all, so I've become so much again, I'm thinking about those things much more than I ever did. You know, as a business owner, my employees get a year full pay. And the reason I just didn't want the mothers to experience stress while they're raising in that first year, especially, I just see how much work there is to do in our society to like really honor and have reverence for mothers and parents in general. Mm -hmm. But in the States, there's such an extractive, and this is true of the world, so this, I'm not picking on the U.S., but the U.S., especially in terms of their lack of maternity leave. Yeah, that's shocking. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's very extractive. It's like get back to work and produce, not, oh, my God, your connection to your child, actually, for your own mental health, for your child's mental health, is more important than yeah. you producing for us. Yeah. For, I mean, six months? That would be, I'd say, a year for sure. I think in Canada now there's even a thing where you can extend your mat leave and stretch out your 12. You only get full pay for, I think, like three months of it. But you can extend that 12 months of pay to 18 months. Yeah, that's amazing. You can take 18 months. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's probably worse for dads as well. I mean, I don't know. I'm surprised that about Canada. In Canada, dads, I think, can take part of that. Like, I think they can take six weeks or something like that of paternity leave. Or they can take a part of the mother's mat leave. Yeah, paternity leave is so important for dads and for the child. Right. Yeah, like I'm taking six weeks off completely. Yeah, good for you. Fuck, it's wild. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, Dude, you might can't go wait. crazy. I'll be, I'll be texting you, calling you like, yeah. uh, what the fuck do I do? <laughs> no, you're going to be fine. The best thing is, the, that's the, the most enjoyable thing about parenthood is that you work it out. Like yeah. humanity's worked it out. I mean, seven point eight billion of, people were born. Right. Like, I think the body's pretty brilliant. The mind. I mean, and Kai, I couldn't have a better portal. Like, I didn't want. I didn't want to say it. <laughs> yeah. But you're going to be fine because Kai's <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> she, she really is. No, like, I know she is. I said to her, "Are you she's nervous?" Well out your league. I said, she's "Way out." I know. And I was like, "Are you nervous at all?" And she's like, "No," because it's just so innate for her, and she's done so much. Like, she just knows so much. Yeah, she's a mom. She's brilliant. She's mum already. Yeah, I feel really honored to be able to parent with her and bring a child into the world with her. So yeah, man. But That's I'll it. See. I feel. Are we done? Are we done? I think we're done. I feel. I feel like probably because we probably head down some rabbit holes. We did. We hit a lot of things. It's. I'm grateful. Thank you for coming on. Grateful for your friendship. Um, no, the same. No, the you're a superstar. Serendipitous nature of how we were brought into each other's lives, and I know while looking at it. In fact, we will have a glass of. Well, I'll have a glass of wine while you have a soft drink. You know, I had an alcohol-free wine, and you know I was that's ex- called. You know, that's called grape juice. <laughs> Welch's grape juice. Yeah. I expected it to taste kind of, you know, like grape juice. 
it actually tasted like wine. I just wanted to try it because I was I was at the liquor store picking up some for a friend. And I was like, do you have liquor, like alcohol-free wine? And they're like, actually, yes, we have a really good new one. And I tried it and I was like, so I'm at this party, like, hey. I would cancel that store straight away. The tannins in this one, excellent. Oh, right. Yes, this pairs well. With <laughs> yeah, a... it was actually kind of good. Um but yeah, that sounds good. We'll have a we'll we'll, we'll, we'll reminisce talk about the tonight. off the record stuff tonight. Yeah, we'll talk tonight. But yeah, appreciate you, brother. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for being a good friend. And no, no, thank you. The support that you've given me is amazing. I can't recommend, and I'm constantly recommending you because you've been so brilliant. Particularly at that time when I went through the biggest heartache and I was so isolated. Even though you were remote, you were really, really present, and. Yeah, yeah. what you do for a lot of people. I get messages about you. so and I've shared a couple of them, but I don't want to make your head too big. Um, <laughs> but no, you've, you've been a solid, solid dude. And uh, we should probably be gay lovers. Because you know that's what? what the press said. Which makes it true. Yeah. So on that note, <laughs> we much better love, end it there. <laughs> much love.